All right, ready? The creepy and the spooky, the spooky, the true. It's creepy and kooky, mysterious and spooky. Are you serious? Look here, here's the thing. All right, all right, all right, all right. Look, the creepy and the kooky, mysterious, spooky. They're all together, ooky. The Adams family. That's going and in the yes, episode. Uki Uki is a word that was made up just for that intro. It doesn't actually exist in the English language, so don't go around using it. People will not know what you're talking about. But mm, but what if they just know it from the Adams family and like, you know what? It's I'll Google it now. What does the word Uki mean? Yeah, I'm actually gonna have to look that up as well. Uh, uh okay. No, that's not nope. Uki, adjective, repellent, slimy, yucky. Is that a real word? It's in Oxford dictionaries. Wow. Okay. I uh, I I guess I learned something. Thanks, Oxford. Wow. Uki. Well, let's hope we don't meet any Uki folks on the podcast today. Oh, apparently it did originate in the Adams family, though. <laughs> Okay, okay. Well, I feel better than that. They made up a word, and it came... It passed into normal usage. That's okay. It seems that way, yeah. That's how English is. Yeah, that is how English is. a famous TV show just invents a word. Hey, to be fair, the word elbow only exists because Shakespeare was like, we need a word for that bendy thing on your arm. So he's like, elbow, I guess. Really? Yeah. Huh. I didn't know that. Yeah. See, it's like... I think they would have... I think they would have come up with that earlier. Yeah, no, but it's like they... doctor, doctors or something would have come up with that. To be fair, though, I, I was listening to a podcast called Sawbones about like medical history. A lot of uh, it, let's just say that the history of medicine, it takes a really long time for the for for us to reach the point in time where doctors actually know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I think it have it, we the... reached have we reached it yet? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, well. Supposedly, I mean, like, it, it, we've only gotten there in, like, the 18, 1900s. So, technically, like, a large portion of medical history or, like, the biggest advances in medical, like, ethics and blah, blah, blah came within the past, like, 300-something years. So, it took a while for us to get there. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, we should get started. Yeah, I mean... Welcome to the Level Cap Podcast, the one-stop medical stop for all things Level 99 games, news, Seems and-, and otherwise. <gasps> Brad. Yeah, oh. then I beat you to it this time. What is my purpose of this show? <laughs> Nothing. Good night. Good night, everybody. Marco's been thwarted. He was kind of ooky anyway. Oh my gosh. Okay, I, I don't think people would know the context behind that. Oh, unless I keep... I thought you were going to put it in the episode. That's true. Uh, like that entire starting part. So I bet they do know the context of the episode. Now that you're listening to this, Marco is telling you you don't know what you in fact do know. Marco, don't be mean to our audience. Maybe you should apologize right now. Um, I'm sorry, audience, but to be fair, I am literally the god of this podcast and I could remove it from the start of the episode to make myself correct. Well, well, Marco, I trust you won't do that. Yeah, I won't. It's quality content where we spent a few moments talking about English language evolving, I guess. Man, I love the English language. It's like it half doesn't make sense and half makes sense. I love the English language, but I love it kind of like, you know, kind of like uh, like Cheetos. But like if you were stranded on a desert, like che- Cheetos are good. But if what if you were stranded on a desert island and Cheetos were the only thing you had, you would have to like Cheetos. Like you wouldn't have any other choices. Oh. That's kind of how I feel about English. Like I don't have anything. I know a little bit of Japanese, you know, maybe I have a few Pocky sticks stuck among my Cheetos, <laughs> but uh it's it's not uh it's it's not enough to like sustain myself on pocky sticks. Cheetos are all I have. Oh man, man does not live on Cheetos alone, Brad. Well, I mean, hey, you know, when you're on a desert island and there's Cheetos, what are you gonna do? Wait, hey, wait a minute. So then you'd have a lot of stuff to eat. Well, 
Yeah, but it's all Cheetos. No, you're that on the a... whole. That was the whole point of the analogy. No, no, you're on a desert island. No, no, it's a desert island. Did I say desert island? I think I misheard it. I think it. I said desert island. I'm pretty sure that only exists in Kirby. Oh man, ah oh, Kirby, I love Kirby. Isn't though. that the name? That's the name of the of the the island chain that he was on, right? The 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 desert islands in Kirby's Adventure. I can't remember. You know what? I wouldn't be surprised if it was, and if it was. Oh, apparently there is a place called Desert Island in the real world. I'm sure there is. It's too good to pass up. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's too good, but also completely unoriginal. So, welcome to the Level Gap Podcast, um, where we talk about Level 99 games and otherwise. Brad, I just I just want to ask you, how has your day been? Um, Mostly otherwise, so far. Ooh, not Level 99 games? Not Level 99 games yet. Um the first thing I do as I come down and sit and do this podcast, usually. So uh, so it's mostly otherwise so far. I see. Well, don't worry. We're going to get some cereal, take a shower. Ooh. You know, oh, say good morning to you're Linda. a morning shower person, huh? Yeah. This is too much. This is too detailed. This is too detailed about my everyday life. All right. But speaking of speaking of, of baths, um, I went to a... Uh, like Japanese style spa last weekend. Ooh. It's called Ten Thousand Waves here in in Santa Fe, just a short drive away. How was it? Um, it was really nice. It's always relaxing to go up there and uh, and soak for a bit. And they have a really cool, uh, really cool lodging area. That's a Japanese style room with so tatami mats. That's ah, fun. It's a really neat place. Oh man, that sounds so cool! Like, is it is it expensive? I've never been to one of those places. So. It's a little expensive. I mean, it's one of the top spas in in America. It's a, it's over it's about one or two hundred dollars. But you know, do it once every other year or so, just to, to take some time. Is it all expenses paid? Like, do they give you like free food and stuff? not free food, but they give you a free spa spa pass. Oh, do you just go to everywhere? Oh, that sounds so cool. Yeah, it comes with the, yeah, staying in the room comes with the spa pass. It's pretty cool. It's a neat place. Oh, man. All right, where uh, are you, where are you I highly on? recommend it if you're in uh, if you're in the desert. Um, no, Linda came with me. Uh, co- it's, we, we go on a retreat now and then. Couple spa retreat week. That sounds so cool. Uh, yeah, just for one day, but it was nice. Uh, at least, at least still, you know. I mean, like, I've never experienced something like that. And it sounds like something I'd like. Yeah, well, I'm sure they have them out there with you. Huh. Just got to take a look. Yeah, I might. I mean, it's they're all over the place in Asia. Yeah, I've probably got to find something like that because all I know are like those like cheapo resorts with like three different kinds of swimming pools, and one of them is a wave pool. You know that stuff. It's like <laughs> it's not even a spa. It's just it's just swimming pools, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, you've been doing anything else? Mm-hmm. Other than that, um, just do we we've got our seed season two big box in um i posted an update on that on uh, tuesday this week so we got that in it's super cool we got um what's the other thing we got we got um no that's it that's the only thing we got in we're mostly just working on seventh cross and imperial right now Mm. Mm. so i've been doing a lot of development work and uh also planning for exceed season 2.5 and season 3. Uh can we tell people what season 3 is about? Like are we ever going to No, we that? can't we can't say it yet. We can't say 2.5 or 3 yet um until we get official confirmation from the uh the people the, the folks yeah, the, the the people who are in control of those licenses. That's fair. But okay. they're they're licensed properties. That's what I could say. One is a is a video game uh, well-known fighting video game. The other one is a well-known anime, which is also about fighting mostly. Um, it's kind of hard to make exceed seasons about things that aren't about fighting, so it wouldn't. Uh, you shouldn't be too surprised by that. Phoenix Wright season Don't read now. Too deeply into that. Phoenix Wright season now. <laughs> I mean, they did it in they did it in MVC three, right? Yeah. So I guess we could. Yeah, they did. They did. Have everyone collect evidence. <laughs> Anywho, anyway. but that's that's what we've been up to is is just doing a lot of game development and um, yeah, just trying to trying to get together the final castle mechanics for Seventh Cross. The exploration is what we're working on now. We got the boss fights locked down. Everything there is going really well. So just a matter of getting the exploration portions to uh, to finish up. Oh man, I can't wait! I can't wait. Um, shucks, I forgot there was like a video game awards thing on BGG and trains sorry imperial spells and steam and argent all won awards so yay us 
Really? Huh. Yeah, I think... I ex- check that out. Um, Imperial won most anticipated game for 2018. And then... Uh, Argent won best worker placement. Cool, cool. Well, you have to link me to that so that I can I can check it out. Yeah, I, I've already posted it on social media, so all of you fans should know. Ironic that Brad's okay. the one who doesn't know. Yeah, I know. I need to spend more time on BGG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, there's that. Um, are you going to ask me what I've been doing so that we can move this? Nah. We'll just skip over that and move on to the next segment. What have you been doing, Mark? Oh, my gosh. Brad, won't you come and take away? Oh, my gosh. I've been watching or listening You've to. You've been singing karaoke? Nope. Um, the Greatest Showman. I've just recently watched it because. Oh, okay. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. So, so here's the thing, right? In the Philippines, there's a thing called the Metro Manila Film Festival. And what mm-hmm. that effectively does is that the entire month of December, no foreign movies can be played in cinemas. Really? Yeah. And basically, you're pseudo-required to only show local movies. Sounds a bit, uh, sounds a bit fascist. And yes, it kind of is. I mean, like, it's supposedly to, like, give a chance to all of these lower-budget movies to come in so that they can get shown. Because it's like, mm-hmm. during December, like, if we only showed... If theaters were only allowed to show, like, whatever they wanted, they'd only show the stuff that makes them the most profit. And usually... Yeah, all the Hollywood movies. Yeah, exactly. And so those indie movies, like, um, Saving Sally wouldn't be able to... Like, wouldn't be there if 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 uh, yeah. the MMFF didn't exist. But that also means that any foreign movies that come out in December don't come out here. And they instead get pushed to February, January, right? Greatest Showman came uh-huh. out at around that time, so... Uh, I'm really late in watching it. It's so good. The soundtrack's great. Yeah, I like still haven't seen it yet. I I'm not too much of a musicals person, oh, but oh. I, Brad, I, I am. Uh, I've wanted to watch it. I'm such a musicals person. It's so good. Um, here's the thing, though. Uh, musical Marcos. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Though here's the thing. It's a musical, right? So, like, if you're a person who's really into story and like character development and stuff. It might not be the movie for you. Because, cause, mm-hmm. like, let's just say that a character, like, in a musical, a character goes from being, like, bigoted jerk to literal saint over the course of a one song, which lasts, like, five minutes. So if you're not the kind of person who can deal with that kind of stuff, this movie might not yeah. be good for you. But, I mean, you're going into a movie, you have to have a certain suspen- suspension of disbelief anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I understand I understand the genre. Yeah, I don't know. I don't knock it. It's just like when when people break into song, it breaks my immersion. Sometimes that's the uh, that's all there is to it. Yeah, but I like I like musicals. I mean, I don't I wouldn't say I like musicals, but I I I understand musicals and I respect musicals. That's what I mean. Yeah, so, I mean to say there's some really good musicals out there, most of which are free for you to listen to. So um. This this greatest showman thing's also kind of pseudo revived some of the uh, cool musicals that I've liked since before. Um, I mean, I would probably recommend them on this podcast. Uh, they do have some adult language, so um, watch out for that because you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, what what musicals do you recommend, Marco? Uh, well, I I'd recommend some stuff like Dear Evan Hansen. You know, everything on Broadway is kind of good, but some quote unquote indie musicals are. Um, you know, there's this troupe called uh, Star Kid, uh, and they post mm-hmm. full length musicals online on YouTube. So if you ever want to watch any of these musicals, you can just go onto YouTube, and they're all there. Um, they kickstarted a musical, and this is what I find to be very interesting about it. They kickstarted a musical called Twisted. The um the untold story of a royal vizier. So uh, they basically took Wicked, right, mm-hmm. and then made it about um, Jafar from Aladdin. Uh huh. So okay, that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Um, and one big thing that I really like about this musical is that most of their songs take the melody of a Disney song and warp it a bit. So, but you can still tell that it's a Disney song melody, and then they just make the lyrics mm-hmm. about like the the musical. So they have a song called "Twisted," which is the main song for the entire musical, and um, it's it's this entire part where in a bunch of villains from all different Disney musicals and Disney movies come in, and they all start talking about you know how 
all of them aren't necessarily bad, just people who are misunderstood. And the uh-huh. the the melody for that song was "Poor Unfortunate Souls" from The Little Mermaid, and was Little really Mermaid. Oh, okay, right. And this is and this is this is by a group called Star Kid. Yeah, Star Kid, pretty good. Um, there's okay. There's lots I'll of reference. Check it out. Yeah. Check it out if you're into musicals. It's not a very serious musical, of course, but it's still great, and it made me cry during that one bit, so it's fine. Okay. Yeah. Oh, am I boring you, Brad? It's it's fine. No, no, no. It's it's early morning. It's early morning, John. Marco, don't worry about it. <laughs> just kidding. Just, just kidding. Just Our... keep on talking. I'm going to take a little nap. Oh, okay. No, and that's pretty much <laughs> what I've been doing for this week. So if any of you want us to, like, try a thing um, that's easy to accessible, please, and legal, please, legal, and safe for work, um, please tell us in the comment section down below. You know, Brad and I aren't opposed to trying out new things. Yeah, it's great how Marco discovers all this cool media stuff. And uh, sometimes, occasionally, I do too, but not that often. So I mostly rely on you for my media ideas, Marco. Yeah, okay. Then um, next next episode, we're going to talk about Mr. Mosquito. But aside from that, um, Brad, tell me, this week, do we have a character of the week or do we have a pipeline? Uh, So we don't have a character of the week. We would like we would talk about pipeline this week, um, and I think it's a good week to talk about it because we did just get exceed season two in, so I could talk about the press process and how all the production comes together and how we handle the back end of you know like after we've made a game after we have balanced everything and gotten all the materials together, what do we do next? How do we get the game from the you know the raw materials into physical materials and then into your hands? Oh, that's really interesting. So, yeah, I hope it'll be, a, it'll be an interesting segment to talk about that process. All right, so uh, let's you guys. let's start it off, Brad. You have your board game idea. All of the proofs, uh, well, not proofs, but all of your data files, PDFs are done. What do we do now? So the next thing you do, so well, at this point, you've already contacted your preferred printer, maybe two or three preferred printers, and you've gotten quotes. And the quotes will tell you, you know, um, how much it's going to cost, how many units you're going to have to produce, etc. And so offset printers, these are the, the printers that do high volume uh, pro- uh, products. Offset printers will require you to print some minimum number. Usually it's 1,500 these days. In the old days, it might have been 10,000 because offset printing wasn't quite as good. Um, usually for us, it's going to be about 2,500 to 5,000 units of any given game that we produce. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we have a quote in hand. We know how much the game's going to cost, and we push ahead to go to production. We send all of our files to the printer, along with a big spreadsheet that um, is called a manifest. that details all the contents of the box, the sizes, the stocks. The, by stocks, I mean the weights of the paper, the things that we printed on. The kind of coding that you're going to use on your paper... Um, the side of like gloss finish that you're going to use on your paper, the um, so, like any plastic bits that you're going to, to produce, any stock parts such as wooden cubes or matchsticks or anything else, all that stuff goes into this big document. You put all that together, hand it off to the printer. They take uh, they take your PDFs and they lay them out into print sheets. And the print sheets are these really big single-sheet pieces of paper. They're probably about a yard wide and some indeterminate length. They can be uh, pretty long. What's a and yard? You, I'm sorry, but what's a yard a... is it's a, it's a little shorter than a meter. It's a three feet measurement. Is it three feet? Uh, yeah, it's three feet. Okay, okay. Sorry, sorry, I'm I'm not an American. No, no, it's okay. That's okay. All right. Um. So yeah, so you get your press sheet. And then um, Josh takes a look at this press sheet, and he makes sure that all of the cards are on the sheet, in the correct quantities, in the correct order. Once that is confirmed, um, you do the same thing for the boxes, for the rule books, for any peripheral bonus content cards, and for any tuck boxes. Basically every single printed component in this game. If you've got punch sheets, then you have to look at the position of the... You, you make your own punch sheets. So you lay out all the cards, or all the tiles, all the punches that you want to have. And then you draw die lines. And the printer will send you back a version with uh, with fixed die lines that shows where the, the punch sheet is going to get punched, where the cuts are going to be in that punch sheet. And so once you've confirmed all that stuff, then they start production. Production can take anywhere from 
15 days for a simple card game like Pixel Tactics, all the way up to like 45 or 60 days for a really complex game like uh, Exceed Season 2. And one of the reasons Exceed Season 2 is so complex is because in addition to the four different varieties of box, so there's four main retail boxes, there's also five small tuck box uh, products, a playmat, an art book, and the um, poster, thank you letter. All this stuff then has to be produced, then has to go into a collector's box, which is then produced separately. Right. And finished up. So all that stuff uh, comes together and goes into the box. Then, um, so after so after that, so after about uh, about two full months, you ten, you have your whole game produced, everything finished finished up, ready to go. Then it's time to do your freight booking to actually get the game from the warehouse, from the factory warehouse where it was printed, all the way over to your fulfillment center or to your garage if you're going to do your own fulfillment, like oh we did gosh. back in our early days. But you don't do that anymore, right? Because you're not crazy. No, 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 no. I, I mean, it was cool when we had like 300 backers for a project. We would do it. But now we have like 2,000 backers for a project. It's not feasible for us to do the fulfillment anymore. I couldn't fit enough products in my garage. My garage is not big enough to fit that many games. Of course. There's no way I could do it myself. That means you put it in your living room and your bedroom. <laughs> yeah. No, it used to be a lot of fun. Like we'd, we'd, you know, we'd have like three or 400 orders to ship. We'd get the games delivered here. You know, a couple friends would come over. We'd, we'd uh, you know, put on some music, pack some boxes, go out to dinner afterwards. It was a lot of fun. Wait a um, minute. Wait a minute. I so, enjoyed that. So full, yeah. when you said pack some boxes, this made me think. Does that mean that when you get all this stuff from the printer, they all come separate? And then you guys have to package the boxes individually? So, yes. Typically. So, typically, when you, when you um, purchase a product like this... They, the factory will do what's called cartoning, and they will carton each of the boxes um, separately. So a carton might have 8 to 12 boxes. A carton of Pixel Tactics is 48 boxes. A carton of Millennium Blades is 3 boxes. It just depends on the size of the game. But the carton takes the game and puts it into a size that's manageable for warehousing and shipping and retail management. So um, they carton your game. And then it's on a dock in China, and then Chinese New Year hits, and you have to wait two additional weeks to get started with anything. Because of course. Uh, because of course. But if that doesn't happen, you get started right away. You contact your freight forwarder, um, and sometimes your factory can do this as well for you if you don't have a freight forwarder. But I recommend getting a freight forwarder because they um, they will it'll be their job to manage your your game. And once the factory leaves, the factory usually doesn't care that much oh. what happens to it. Yeah. Okay. Um, but anyway. You call your freight forwarder and you say, hey, like I've got these products in this place. I need to move them to these locations. For us, we have five different fulfillment centers. There's one in the USA, Canada, England, um, China, and Australia. So those five fulfillment centers for us. We split the shipment up based on how many backers we have in each of those zones, coordinated, um, divided up into different pallets, and then we ship all the products out to those different areas. We actually have six destinations because our distribution center, or our distribution agency warehouse, is a separate destination from those five. Oh, okay. So we, um, so the the lion's share of things, um, the U.S., Canada, and our U.S. distribution goes to Chicago. Uh, the rest goes directly to its own destinations, to England, to um, to China, which they just ship it overland, and then to Australia. Those get there. We upload a big spreadsheet with everybody's name, address, phone number, what they ordered, and um, and the fulfillment centers ship that out. And then when things get to the to U.S., the freight forwarder then accepts them at the dock, splits that big shipment up into the three smaller shipments, Canada fulfillment, USA fulfillment, and USA distribution. And then they freight those to their ultimate destinations. So Find their final really destinations. Yeah, the final destination. This and this is why it's really good to have a freight forwarder because the freight forwarder is, um, you know, is in charge of that process, and they have an office there at the Chicago warehouse, and their guys will come down and supervise to make sure that the the pallet gets split correctly. If they have any questions, they can call you and contact you. And obviously, if you hired a factory in China to ship directly to your your warehouse destination, there would be nobody to do that. You just have to trust that FedEx gets it right or whatever. Oh, that right. That's not. That's dangerous. That sounds really dangerous. Not yeah. Not with that much money on the line, right? It's yeah. much. It's much better to just pay someone to have human oversight. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. Um, now, for, for us, one of the things that we've done to improve the process is when you purchase a pledge, say you get the Argent, um, you know, Master Student Pledge, and it's got all of the, you know, it's got the base game, the expansion game, a couple mini packs, it's got, um, you know, all kinds of other stuff. What we do is in we tell the factory in China, like, hey, we want you to pre-print or pre-pack this many boxes in a carton this size because the factory has box manufacturing tools and they can create a cardboard box that's the exact right size for your, your bundle of products. Um, whereas if it gets to America, we have to then go and source boxes from Uline or some other provider that may be a close fit for your product Ooh. as opposed to making one that is exactly fits the product. So what they do is in, is um, the factory will print this box, and the box will say, you know, this is the Master Student Pledge box, you know, one of 150, and then um, pre-pack that, seal it up, and we ha- we can just have those pre-packed pledges sent to each destination. Oh, that also saves you on fulfillment because at a fulfillment center, typically everything that they have to pick off the shelf and pack into your box go- costs you like 10 to 20 extra cents. So if it cost me, say, like $15 to ship a box to you, um, which obviously it costs like 60 because you're in the Philippines, but say it cost me like <laughs> some, some amount of money to ship a box to you, right? Um, but the guys, the, guys in, the guys in China will ship it to you for like 15 It's great. It's really great. This is the power of, of, uh, of, you know, of having multiple fulfillment centers because, yeah, the VFI Asia in China will ship to the Philippines for like 15 bucks, whereas... In America, it would cost me sixty to ship that same package to you. Yeah, it's so true. Because when I bought the original like War and Devastation Kickstarters, it was like, why? Why does the shipping cost as much as the game? Right? But yeah, it's it's pretty bad. I'm, it's great that we've gotten better processes. We can we can do like legitimate shipping deals now. Yeah, it's so um, good. But any anywho, anyway, so it cost me about a m- amount of money to ship to you. But then. If the factory had to source the, if the fulfillment center has to source a box and pack it, it might cost me three or four extra dollars. And you're like, well, three or four extra dollars, sure, whatever. But it costs the factory like ten cents to put it all in the box, and they do it at the factory and they create their own box, as opposed to that three dollars. And when you multiply that by say like two thousand backers, it starts to add up really fast. Mm -hmm. So a big part of making the shipping more economical for for people on the end is you know, reducing the cost of that uh, fulfillment packaging and sourcing. Mm, an innovation. But yeah. So, yeah. So, Brad, is, is that the entire process? Like, what happens when you finally send out the games? Uh, do you guys have, like, some sort of, like, I don't know, process that makes sure that all the games get to everyone? Or do you just wait for the fulfillment centers to tell you, oh, we sent the games? Well, each fulfillment center does it a little differently. Most will send out tracking numbers to all of your backers. And then, um, you know, and so from that, you will be able to test if packages arrived. Typically, we don't check because there are so many uh, coming out. But we let everybody know via an email and, you know, and via Kickstarter, like, hey, things are shipping out now. You should get your box in X days. If you don't, you know, contact us and let us know so that we can reship it or track it for you or whatever. Um, And each fulfillment center, typically a good fulfillment center, is going to email the tracking number to the recipient. Because we have emails for all our recipients on Kickstarter, obviously. You so you should you should see an email update that says, "Hey, your box is coming at this particular time and place." Hmm. Interesting. And we've had yeah, we haven't had too many problems. There's always a few that uh, they slip through the cracks. Brazil is especially tough. Ah, uh, yeah, because it's the Brazil. Customs in Brazil is really rough. Yeah. Um, South America in general is tough to ship to. So is the Middle East. Oh, I never knew but, that. Uh, yeah, Middle East, because it's, it's I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's volatility or if it's just the post-service not being very well developed. Yeah. But uh, Middle East is pretty tough. And we, we've shipped a few times to Africa, to different places, usually South Africa. Um, I think I think once to uh, Egypt. But That's pretty cool. But yeah, those usually go through Europe. They're going to that zone. We don't have enough people in the Middle East and Africa to justify having a fulfillment center in that area uh but enough in asia so i'm fine with that Ayo. yeah we, f- we finally added asia this time oh my uh, gosh that was really good Feels adding so australia good. was was a big deal yeah i never knew there was yeah. like a lot of people in australia do some australian like 
do some of the stuff that go in Australia end up going to Asia instead? Or is everything in Asia just going to China? Everything in Asia is going to China, Japan, Philippines, Malaysia. Malaysia, um, I don't think we, we don't have any in India. Um, and I think we have, a, we have a couple South Korea. You know, um, but, but basically it's, it's continental Asia. Ah. And, and those little bits of Oceania that are near Asia. Man, imagine if you got one North Korea thing. No, you there there are like places that you just can't ship to. Oh, is uh, North Korea one of them? Yeah, like like in America it's actually illegal for us to do business transactions with North Korea. I never Not knew that, that they not that they can act, that they would ever order anything, but um I think the situation is such that board games are not really their concern in North Korea, but yeah, like if somebody in North Korea attempts to do business with me, I am not allowed to accept their money and do business with them. And if you do, you go to jail. Yeah. Uh, oh. Well, I, I don't know if it's if it's jail or if I, I don't know. It's never come up. Um, but I just know that you're not allowed to. All right. uh, there are other countries, there are other countries like that, mainly countries that like, you know, you're in, that we're in active conflict with. Yeah. Okay, that makes, uh, that makes sense. <laughs> I guess. Huh, interesting, interesting, interesting. No, but here's here's a question for you, Brad. On average, are you allowed to tell me this? Just tell me whether or not this is okay. But like, on average, how much does it cost to have a game, you know, printed, delivered, fulfilled, etc.? Um, it depends a lot on the size of the game and the shipping. The most important factor is the weight of the game. For a game like, well, let's take Battlecon Devastation, since we're about to do the Devastation Master. Oh edition. man, it's a good thing. To isn't that it. one of the heaviest games you guys have ever made? It is. It is. It's not as heavy as Exceed Season Two, um, and it's not as heavy as Millennium Blades. But it cost us uh, sixteen dollars to produce a unit of Devastation, and then to package and ship that unit of, De- of Devastation, let's say to somewhere in America, would be about twenty dollars. So the whole cost of the game is printed and delivered. Oh, and then, well, so it's a little fuzzy because you actually have to freight the game too. So to get all those, that entire shipping container of Devastation over the ocean to Chicago tends to cost about $10,000. But that cost is split among the 5,000 units you printed. So I guess it ends up being about $2 more. Okay. Um, so in, in the end, it's between $35 and $40. Per box. Depending on, on a couple of those different factors. Yeah, to, to print and deliver this box. Um, and if you are, say, in Australia, where the shipping is going to be $60 instead of $22, then, you know, the cost goes up significantly. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But thankfully, Australian Fulfillment Centers, yay. Yay! Th- that said, you still have to, when you add a fulfillment center, you have to freight to the fulfillment center. So it costs like $3,000 to get a shipping container to Australia. Um, that that only that's only profitable if you've got you know a few like over a hundred people in the country that want your your game. Good thing you do. So apparently, yeah, yeah. So you but but you can't just add all these fulfillment centers willy nilly. You have to know that like you have to know that you have that critical mass in that particular zone in order to justify a fulfillment center. Okay, so, I see. So yeah. so wait, wait, didn't you like sell Devastation for like? 60 to 100 bucks? I forget. Yeah, Devastation retails at $75. Yeah, 75 bucks. Um, 75 bucks. So, well, let me tell you a little bit about the, the, the economics of that. This is probably a, a big enough topic. We could have an entire episode about it. But, so give us a small um, taste. Give me like a... I'll give you a small taste. All right, so board games are sold through a four-tier distribution system. All right, I print a game. A distribution agent sells the game to a distributor the distributor sells the game to a retailer. The retailer sells the game to the consumer, right? So the consumer pays 100% MSRP, ideally. Obviously, with like Cool Stuff Inc. and Troll and Toad and Miniature Market, whatnot, you tend to pay about 75% of MSRP. Okay. But it doesn't matter. Everything goes back to MSRP because the retailer pays 50% of the game for MSRP, right? So if, if I sell a game for $100, um, then... The retailer is paying $50 to their distributor for that game. The distributor purchased the game from my distribution agent for $40. So okay. at 40%. All right. And then my distribution agent takes about 7% of that MSRP. 
And so that leaves me about $33 for every that leaves me about $33 for every $100 game that I sell. Wait a minute, but doesn't it cost you like 40 something bucks to make and ship that? If I ship it to a, to a to a retailer. Like I said, the unit cost for devastation is like 16 bucks and then the cost of getting that whole container over the ocean is about $2 per unit. So the game actually cost me about $18 to produce. Right? Um, and so then, mm-hmm. and so and so, I if I retain, let's uh, let me just whip out my calculator real quick and oh man, make sure I give you the exact number. Math, oh but, no, um, yeah, seventy five dollars times point three three, you get about twenty five twenty four seventy five on a copy of Devastation. So if I take out the eighteen dollars that it cost me to produce and get that game over here, I make about six seventy five on each unit that sells in stores. Huh. And that's that's profit. So this is this is a very poor set uh, setup. We undersold devastation, or we sold devastation under the actual value. You're really supposed to sell any game you sell. You're supposed to sell at about five times the production cost. But if we sold devastation at five times uh, eighteen dollars, you know it would have been a ninety dollar game as opposed to seventy five dollar game. And you think? But yeah, you think people I would be making. I don't know. I don't. I. I. I was not certain that people would buy it. But if if that had if I'd done it that way, I'd be making thirty dollars per game, which taking out the eighteen is a you know twelve dollar profit. So that's times two. Yeah. Um, and it, ideally, ideally, you want to make if you invest five dollars, you want to make ten dollars on your product. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now with Kickstarter, we're able to do that because I can print the game and ship it for forty bucks. And I could print and ship the game for like forty bucks, and then I've still got you know twenty dollars left over from what you know what people pledged for the game. Even if I only charge sixty dollars for a game that costs twenty to produce, I can still have a very reasonable profit margin on that game. And of course, don't forget that that profit goes to cover things like the art development and the time of the graphic designers and production managers and my own development time you know all the things that go into actually making the game so the expenses are a little greater than just the production value of the game yeah yeah but that stuff is kind of nebulous and tough to uh tough to track man so we you know board game production yeah it's a, it's hard. a difficult it's a it's a difficult thing but um the thing about distribution is that even though you don't make as much money on distribution you can do bulk you know the, the difficulty of selling a thousand units directly on Kickstarter versus just dropping a thousand units into distribution and watching them vanish is um, is it's much easier. Ah, so there's a trade off. It's a trade off. It's a trade off, but there's also the other side of it where when you produce, the factory says like, "Hey, you've got to make twenty five hundred of these." Well, if I only sold a thousand on Kickstarter, that means I have fifteen hundred left to do whatever with. Um, so I should throw, I can throw those into distribution and, um, you know, and make a little bit of, of money back on them. Oh, and watch them disappear into the ether. Ah. Right. So, so that's typically, um, the way that these, these sorts of things go. All right. So now we know one very important detail, Brad. Uh-huh. We need 2,500 backers every time we do a Kickstarter. Hey. Yeah. We've done that like twice, I think. Yeah, we need we need to do it for the next one. Eh, don't worry. We really do. We do. But I, I think Imperial will have that kind of universe. Yeah, I was deal. about to say, it's like, the next one's going to be a train placement game. I think we're sold. Oh, with yeah. miniatures. But, so we're fine. <laughs> All right. Well, even if we, um, even if we, even if we sold 2,500, I would then print 5,000 because I want to put, I do want it in distribution. Having your game on store shelves is, is a nice form of advertising too. It's nice to have shelf presence. That's true. I really need to bug my local game store to get some level ninety nine games games. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could probably even donate my own copy of that. Devast- Never mind. Okay. Look, here's the thing. That's pretty much the pipeline where Brad talks about some development. I guess this time it's not development. It's more of production. Yeah. This is the production side of things. All right. And you know. The board game life isn't always glamorous, but it's a filled with math, so I guess that's kind of glamorous in its own way. Brad Yeah, you gotta you gotta be pretty precise to, to deal with these sorts of things. It's a weakness that I have, and so I've I've worked to get processes in place that will make sure everything goes smoothly. 
Those checks and balances, man. Those checks and balances. All right. So let's yep. move on to our final segment, our 99 questions, where we answer the hot, kicked questions straight from your hands into our heads. You kick a question from your hand into their head. Yes. This is a pretty dangerous contact sport, sounds like. Um, I mean, better than okay. better than Quidditch. Well, don't forget to dodge. Um, dodge, anyway. Gohan! Dodge! Okay. Um. <laughs> Alright, first question, Brad. Are you ready? <laughs> Will the BCO soundtrack ever be made available for purchase or download? I know it's on YouTube, but I'd like to put it on my phone to listen to on my super long drive to work if I can. So we 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 do need to deliver the BCO soundtrack. Um, it's one of the things that was available through the Kickstarter. And if um, after we do that, we'll probably think about some way to put it on sale and uh, and share the soundtrack. But yeah, I would certainly like to. Um, I would certainly like to do that. Yeah, it would be cool, man. So yes, man. Yeah, I am. Uh, the answer is yes. It will be available for purchase and download. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. So this one's kind of related. Number two, what is your favorite video game soundtrack? Um, well, for me, I'd have to say probably Bloodborne. That's what I've been listening to the most. Um, uh -huh. As I developed Southern Cross, I just listened to the Bloodborne soundtrack on repeat. Uh, how about you, Marco? Oh, man. I mean, I guess it's like a normal answer or like an obvious answer, but um, Bastion's soundtrack. Huh, I wouldn't have, have thought about that. I feel like the normal answer is probably Mega Man 2. Oh, that's fair. I'm like, I don't know. I'm like really into that entire, like, I don't know. I don't know what genre of music it is, but like, you know, every song in Bastion basically sounds like something you would hear if the cartoon is showing you like a swamp or bog area. And then like, you know, those, those typical like, um, I don't know what instrument it is. Like the guitar, like, like, no, I don't know. Guitar? Yeah, like electric guitar. No, not guitar, but it's like it's like southern swamp a banjo. Yeah, maybe like a banjo. It's like that. Like I like that kind okay. of soundtrack. I mean, like if you listen to like um, Cesar's theme, the guitars in Cesar's theme are what I'm talking about. Oh, okay. Right. Like, I'll check it out. But you can play it on the podcast for so they get an idea. Uh, yeah, of course I'm going to play it. Um, both the Bastion and Cesar's Theme. Cesar's Theme, such a good soundtrack. It's probably in my top three of VCO soundtracks. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Yeah, his voice acting is going to be ready pretty soon as well. Okay, Brad, can you spoil me on something? Yeah, sure. Is Cesar's voice acting... Like, what was his direction? Did you just make him sound like Oren from Final Fantasy X? Um... I am not. I'm not certain. Like I haven't gotten the actual clips yet. I know that it's it's a uh, gruffer sort of action hero voice. Uh, so, but I don't know exactly. I don't know exactly how everything's gonna sound just yet because they're still in processing. I see. Because I'm holding out for him to sound southern. Um, I don't know if he's southern. Well, you'll just have to see. Oh man. Okay. I mean, I guess you can't spoil what you don't know. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. All right. Last one. This is a really... Oh my gosh, this is really funny. All right. What's the silliest Battlecon matchup you've encountered? I just played Elgor versus Elgor in Battlecon Online and was wondering if there was any matchup weirder than that. Um, Pretty much any matchup using the armory is going to be weirder um, and sillier. I, I'm a big fan of the armory and especially the deck duel mode in armory. <clears throat> mm -hmm. The weirdest, the the weirdest matchup. Um, I got, I got magnificent mic dropped by Marmalee for uh, <laughs> like like seven damage, and it was uh and I, the, just the image just the image flashed through my head, and <laughs> I was like, wow, that's uh. <laughs> Imagine this dragon. I don't think it gets any sillier than this. this dragon lady does a triple pirouette and then throws a mic at you. <laughs> Yep. Magnificent. 
Oh my gosh. So that's, uh, yeah, so that that's th- those get pretty silly, and they're a lot of fun. Uh-huh. Um, as far as just pure character matchups, I don't know. What about you, Marco? What do you think? Pure character matchups. I mean, if I get, if, like, on the mechanical side of things, if I said this in the podcast, it would start exposing the chinks in our wonderful game design. Is that okay? <laughs> what do you mean? I mean, okay, for example, um, some characters weren't designed... Um, in the same sets, so maybe their interactions weren't really seen uh, prior to them being played in real life. And because we added on new core systems after these characters were released, certain things were introduced into their gameplay that they didn't have access to before, and therefore we didn't see any problems with it. Here's the matchup. It's Tannis versus Sagas. So Tannis is from Devastation, she's the puppet girl, and Sagas is from War, he's the staff guy with the sunglasses, right? Okay, yeah, these are like the two most complex characters in their respective sets. Right. Yeah. Okay, so Sagas' mirror token, when he antis it, he gains the ability that whenever a player gains a certain stat or loses a certain stat, the other player also gains slash loses that stat, right? So if Mm -hmm. the opponent gains power, Sagas gains power. If Sagas gains priority, the opponent gains priority. Okay, so that's effectively how it works. Um... Then Tannis has a style that says upon revealing uh, whatever bonuses her opponent get, they don't get it and she gets them instead, right? Uh Uh-huh. So these two things together wouldn't, like, it would ruin, something wouldn't make sense. But it's usually no problem because both of these characters were designed in such a way that they don't gain stats when they play these cards, right? So Tannis has no way to gain stats when she plays um, Playful, I think. And then mm-hmm. uh, Sagas has no way to gain stats when he antis his mirror token because none of his cards provide stats, bonus stats outside the printed um, stats. But since we recently added the Force Gauge and Trials, it is now entirely possible for Sagas to anti his mirror token, Tannis to play Playful, and then Tannis or Sagas will anti Force Power or Force Priority. So this means that when Sagas antis the power... Um, Tannis also gains the power, but then Tannis steals Sagas' power, but she gains that power, so therefore Sagas also gains it. But then Tannis yeah, steals that. Yeah, 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 I see what you mean. Well, um, let me tell you, let me tell you, Marco, um, that uh, Devastation Remastered won't have such problems because we have top men working on it. Uh, and Arel, you will be our top savior. men. Top men. Top men. <laughs> <laughs> is that what your balance team is called? Top men? Uh, yeah, there's nothing Nothing balanced is quite like a top, let me tell you. <laughs> I, I did, I did, okay, I guess. Yep, yep, it's all, they're all Mega Man villains, and they all just sit around balancing games. Yeah, that's that's all, all they, tops. that's all they do. Um, <laughs> you just gave me the idea that Daniel just goes around wearing a suit that's a top. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Anderel and I'm wearing a top or something. I don't know. By the oh, way, me. to anyone We should we should have him we should have him on the podcast at some point to talk about balancing. Oh man, that's gonna be fun because then he would spend like at least five moments talking about how much I whine about Schechter. Um but <laughs> just, No, so uh just in case anybody's wondering, the resolution to that is that it stops once. Like Sagas copies the stats for everyone, Tannis steals it, that's the end. You know, it doesn't keep recurring. That's what we ended up agreeing on. That's what Daniel said would happen. But yeah, stuff like that can happen in BattleCon. And you know, <laughs> effectively, Sagas yeah. and Tannis gain infinite power. B- BCO. BattleCon Online has also forced us to confront a lot of these problems head on as well. Things that we didn't, you know, interactions that weren't previously foreseen like have to be resolved somehow in the code. So... It's uh, it's been really enlightening to to develop the video game version of Battlecon Online too. So there are a couple of characters that have proved more difficult than we expected. Yeah, and that's why that's why Cameron told me that Seth would be released last. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, at least he may he'll he'll at least get released. There's some characters that just you know probably won't because they're they're too crazy. Oh wait, who? Well, I mean. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to say somebody's off limits because 
Cameron and Daniel and Chad might surprise me and say, like, no, we implemented that guy. So I don't want to say anything <laughs> off the top of my head that um, somebody wouldn't be involved. But character like, for example, um, I feel like, you know, Inderbit would be really tough to do. Um, Thessala would be tough to do in the current system. Um, probably, uh, you know, Cherry would be nearly would be impossible in the current system. We'd have to add new system, new things into the the way the engine works to make Cherry work. Stuff like that. I see. So, not to say those characters won't ever happen, but there are, you know, there are implementation hurdles that we have to jump over before we can put them in. You know what's really funny? I was talking to Cameron, like, uh, a few weeks ago, and they were talking about, like, implementing Enderbit, right? Um, yeah. And I was like, haha... You know, why implement Enderbit when we can just implement Joel instead? And apparently, according to Daniel and Cameron, it's actually much harder to implement Joel than it is to implement Enderbit. Yeah, because one just has a setup step once, the whereas Joel gets new cards all the time. Yeah. So, apparently what I find I to be hard to code isn't actually what's hard to code. So, there you go. Yeah. All right. Um, but if we can do Rifflem, we can do a lot of folks. So, I mean, to be fair though, Rivlum just ch- changes stats on cards. So that was a pretty big. That was a pretty big technical hurdle. Really, I never knew that. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah, because we had to be able to. Well, anyway, it's it's a big thing. We should probably yeah. have Chad or Daniel on here to tell us about BCO at some point. Yeah, because I don't know jack about the coding. Because oh yeah. man. All right, all right. So that pretty much does it. Anyway, ninety-nine questions. If you guys have any more questions for us, please tell us in the comment section down below, or click the Google form so that you can submit it, uh, and be guaranteed that it will end up on a podcast. I mean, like everything's guaranteed to end up on a podcast eventually. But if you feel that like it might get lost in the comments, Google form. And um, yeah, hope you guys have a great week. Happy gaming. Stay tuned. Uh, enjoy the uh, the February season and right. uh, otherwise and otherwise so as usual it has been me your Valentine's host Marco DeSantos also known as the Mechanic Critic and with me has been my other Valentine's co-host Brad Talton and we'd like to thank you for listening to the Level Cap Podcast please share with a friend or share with an enemy and as usual don't forget your special action and thank you World of Indians thank you Good night. And good night.